Well, I love the music of Christmas, and I know you do too, and I, I love the lights of Christmas. I have a little vote I want to take this morning. How many of you prefer colored lights on your Christmas tree? Raise your hand and leave it up for a moment. Colored lights on your Christmas tree. All right, very good. Put them down. How many of you prefer white lights on your Christmas tree? All right. I think there are more colored lights. What do you think? Yeah. Just, just checking. I, when I was a boy, I'm not so old, I remember um, fat lights before they were retro. <laughs> you guys remember that? Some of you remember that? Yeah. Fat lights, that was the way to go. And uh, I remember laying on the couch uh, watching the Nutcracker on television and then on the commercials, I would squint at the, have, turn off all the lights in the room and squint at the lights. Did you do that? Anybody with me on this? Yeah. I've always loved the lights. And my, my parents, it was, it was generally cheap to do it, so they would sometimes uh, drive us around to look at other people's lights. And they would comment on how, how high their electric bill must be. But we, <laughs> as a matter of fact, there's a little place out on the edge of town where people had ranch-style homes, which... I guess if you're prosperous, that's what you live in. And um, so they had these, this string of ranch-style homes that my dad assumed must have been high-mortgage homes. So he always called that Mortgage Row. Um, and he always said that that whole area kept Dayton Power and Light in business because of all the lights. We would just drive along and we would ooh and ah other people's expensive lights, those people, those profligate people who wasted their money on stuff like that. I, uh, I like those kind of lights. But my favorite lights... Uh, favorite Christmas lights I've ever seen were the lights that we saw one night on Christmas Eve. And it was in Schoolcraft, Michigan. We were on our way to visit my parents after we'd finished up our, our, our church service. And we drove through this little village of Schoolcraft. And every single one of the streets in Schoolcraft was lined with uh, luminaries. And it was a beautiful thing to see. And I've never gotten it out of my mind. And I guess... I would have to say that luminaries are my favorite kind of Christmas light. And the idea is that they're, to, they're, they're just a, a mild and a gentle light. And the purpose of the light, the luminaries there on the ground, was to guide your feet to the Christ child. In the, we're in a little series of messages here for Christmas, for the month of December, about how to have a sanctified Christmas, how to have a holy Christmas. And last week we were at the communion table, and the advice that I gave you from God's Word was to set aside time for rest for sacred rest. And tonight, today, the message is uh, a second in our series on how to have a sanctified Christmas. And I want to talk to you today about how to be a luminary, how to have a sanctified, a holy Christmas by being a luminary yourself. And my text is um, in John, or excuse me, it's about John, but it's in Luke chapter 1. And so let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to read an extended passage here in Luke chapter 1. You'll see that it is a story about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist specifically said in the book of John that he wasn't the light, but he was the one that came to bear witness to the light. In a bit of a stretch, we could say that John the Baptist was a luminary for for Jesus because Jesus was the light, but John the Baptist's role was to point to Jesus who is the light. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that today. And so let's give attention now to God's Word in Luke chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading in verse 5. And if you will, I'd like you to stand together as we read... uh, God's Word, Luke chapter 1, and reading from verses uh, 5 through 25. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, uh, Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was, the da- was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name 
was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple to the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, my text is the next few verses. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Let's go forward to verses uh, uh, 67. Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 67, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This again was after John the Baptist's birth. Filled the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, Zacharias speaking to his baby John, you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts until the day of his manifestation to Israel. Father, we bow before you together as your people gathered to worship today and to learn and ask that you would edify us by our attention to your Word, the sacred scriptures. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Be seated. John the Baptist is an interesting study in the Bible, and it would, uh, you could take many, many hours to do that. I want you to just focus on a couple of verses about John the Baptist today, and I want you to just make swift application to your own life. When you think about John the Baptist and how you ought to be like him. And I think he is given as, a, as an example. Everything that it says that John, in the Bible that John the Baptist was to do, for the most part, everything that was said that John the Baptist was to do is still true about every believer. 
especially in the sense of being a light, being a luminary, or pointing uh, people to Jesus. And so I want to talk today about what, when you point others to Christ. When you point others to Christ, you bring great joy to many. According to verse 14, notice that what it says, this is the angel speaking to John the Baptist's father, and he says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but if you watch people trying to do Christmas, they generally look like people that are running. They never look happy. Have you ever seen a happy runner? It's rare. People ask me, do you like running? I, like, I always say, I like having run. They say, but do you enjoy it? They press me. A guy pressed me this week. But do you like it? I said, I already answered, I like having run. I, I, I think there are moments when I'm running, I like it, but usually I just like having done it. Um, and, um, and Christmas for a lot of people, it's, it's supposed to be a season of joy and, but you can't tell by looking at them. I was, I stopped for a cup of coffee. I was out on a call and I decided I would treat myself to a cup of uh, coffee on the way back to the study. So I got to, went to this place to get a cup of coffee and I, I pulled in. There's a guy standing on in the par, in the, on the sidewalk in front of the car. Now I'm a big guy, but I was afraid to get out of the car because this guy was so angry. I wonder if he had a gun, he would have shot somebody. Here was a woman, probably his wife or girlfriend, standing there. Here he was on a cell phone. They're standing in front of a toy store, and he is cursing and swearing and shouting, just vile, screaming, veins popping on the side of his neck at somebody on the cell phone. And I think what had happened was that there had been some kind of sleight of hand and advertisement that he was upset about. So he couldn't get the present that he wanted to get for somebody he loved and wanted to bless on this sacred holiday, Christmas. <laughs> Have you been there? Maybe to not, not to that extent, but like you're trying so hard to make Christmas happen, it's just really getting you irritated and angry and completely unchristlike. <laughs> I'm just telling you, John the Baptist, his role was to point people to Jesus. And when we point people to Jesus, we're doing something for them that nothing else can do. We're bringing joy to many people. And that's what it says in verse 14. You will have joy and gladness, obviously, at the birth. And many will rejoice at his birth. And as a result of his life, obviously, many did have a a happy face. I'll tell you a little secret. Every once in a while, to be edified, I... Actually, there's kind of nothing like just being here on Sunday morning to me. To hear the choir sing and listen to sing with you and and uh, and today was a special blessing to my heart and I know yours too to see those those mighty men over there. It, what I enjoy watching was I, I watched a lot of those guys play football all fall and uh, just go at it and they were a delight. It was a highlight of my fall to go on Saturdays and watch a lot of those guys over there playing football and they uh, it was just a lot of fun. And yet, and, and yet the same guys to come to church and to give the same kind of enthusiasm, the same kind of effort into giving honor to Jesus publicly, there's something about that. There's nothing that's more beautiful than young women when they are giving honor to their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There will never be anything more beautiful than that. I'm edified when I come here. When I came last night and I watched the choir sing, and just especially when I see that the music has dropped down into the soul of the person who's singing, and you can tell that they mean it with all of their heart. It's just something about that. I'll tell you a little secret. Every once in a while, I need a pick-me-up spiritually. 
and I will go on my, the website, and I will look up Thomas Road Baptist Church, where Jerry Falwell, his son Jonathan is the pastor now, and they have like, they're a huge church, like tens of thousands of people. So they have like more people in their choirs than we have in our entire church. Well, not quite, but almost. They have, they have a praise band, and they have a, a choir that doesn't have to wear robes, and then they have a big choir that has to wear robes. I don't know why they do that, but anyway, it's just they're, they got people, and they got, pra- they got worship leader, song leader, praise band, drums, guitars, singers, choir. Uh, it's amazing. And so they got this big spectacular thing going on, and they're just like singing. But today I, I cheated, and I looked, and they had two Christmas, two singing Christmas trees on the platform. Two singing Christmas trees. It's kind of cute. People, some big thug up there, like uh, Chris Bonesteel, way up in the top of the up at the top of the, sea, of the of the of the tree, just like bellering forth, you know, singing. Chris, I really pick on you all the time. I'm sorry about that. And singing as unto the Lord in a manly way. What a beautiful thing it is to see people whose lives have been, lives have been touched, like in a deep, deep way. Most people just don't get it. They don't have that joy. They're Christmasing, <laughs> but they don't have any joy in their Christmasing. That's not a sacred Christmas. That's not a holy Christmas. That means that you haven't really met Jesus or you're out of sorts with him. Because when Jesus Christ captures your heart, there's going to there's gonna be joy that comes. It may be joy while tears of pain or hurt are coursing down your face but still there's this inexplicable joy that comes to only people who really know who jesus is and john the baptist's job in the world was to come and make christ known and john the baptist came and he made christ known and in making christ known he brought joy to people and you can do the same thing If you would be a luminary, you would bring joy to people. People would rejoice because of your life. Let me show you the second thing. You also be great in the sight of God. According to the Bible, John the Baptist doesn't say he was a great man here. It says he was a great man in the sight of God, which I suppose is much more important than people giving you a bit of fleeting fame, right? Can you just imagine the old boxer I will not name? He's like, I am the greatest. He was the original trash talker. Remember that? I am the greatest. And you're like, yeah, you, you're not the greatest. You, you're not. No, I mean, you're, you're, you're good. You were dangerous, but you, you weren't the greatest. It, John the Baptist was the greatest. What made John the Baptist great? John the Baptist's greatness was he had the good sense and he was filled by the Holy Spirit to point to Jesus. And if you're going to have any greatness in your life, it's going to be because you pointed other people to Jesus. So if you're a luminary for Christ, if you even use the Christmas season and the rest of your life to point people to Jesus, there's going to be joy that blossoms all around you. And on top of all of that, you will be great in the sight of God. There's nothing that's greater. I read a story this week, a great little story about a boy named uh, Bob. And Bob was a rebel, 16 years old, a rebel. He was such a rebel. He is uh, such a hard nose. He said to his dad in Pennsylvania there, where he grew up, when he was 16 years old, hey, I'm tired of all the rules. I'm tired of you coming down on me about everything. He had trashy, it was, it was back a few years ago, he had trashy novels that he liked to read. His dad caught him reading these trashy novels. And he said, son, as long as you are in this house, you cannot read those trashy novels. And he says, well, then I'll leave. And his dad says, well, then go. And he walks out the door, and as he's walking out the door, his dad says to him, Bob, remember this. They were farmers. He said, if you get to some stumps in life that you can't pull out, you come back and see me, and I will help you. And his son 
spat back in his father's face, I'm not going to need your help. About four years later, he's 20 years old now, he was going, he was going past a little church there in the mountains, in the Allegheny Mountains where he grew up. He decided that he would just slip in and sit in the back row, and that night there was a preacher faithfully preaching the gospel, and Bob got saved. But his life didn't change too much. Till about a year later, there was a special guest speaker. They said, we're going to have church every night. He goes, well, you're going to have church every night. But he was used to smoking and drinking and hanging out at the pool hall with his friends. And so he, um, he, you know, he'd show up on Sunday morning, and uh, he, sometimes he'd be out late at the pool hall carrying on, and he'd kind of clean himself up and come in and sit in the back row with a headache and so forth for that first year after he'd made his profession of faith. But he was going gonna to skip all the special meetings, but something kind of was tugging on his heart. So the first night he went, and the guy was fascinating, really captured his heart. Now the third night he was irritated, though, because the guy said something out of the book of John. He said this. He said, God the Father loves you every bit as much as he does his own son. Well, Bob looks around like, are these people going to let him say that? That's heresy. That's blasphemy. He shouldn't be saying that. Nobody moved. He looked at his dad. He didn't get up. He looked at the regular pastor. His dad, the pastor didn't get up. Nobody corrected the, the evangelist. So he got up. He said, I think you're wrong. And the evangelist was very kind to him. He said, well, son, what makes you think I'm wrong? Where in the Bible would you point to, to me to show where I'm wrong? And he goes, well, I'm not sure. I just, I, it's not right. He goes, well, son, do you have a Bible? He goes, no, I don't have a Bible. He goes, somebody give him a Bible. So he gave him a Bible and said, look up the book of John. So he's standing there, and he scrambles for a while. He can't find the book of John. Finally, he says, now look at John 17. He goes, the John I have doesn't have 17 chapters in it. They're like, you're in the wrong John. His face is red, you know. They show somebody, a little old lady goes over, shows him the right John. He looks it up. The pastor graciously proves to the young man that what he said was, was actually right. And, and during that series of messages, Bob, Robert T. Ketchum, got going for God. He was so eager to serve the Lord that he didn't even go to school. He never went to college or seminary. He just took a little church, and God sent revival, and that church began to grow. If you don't already know this, Robert T. Ketchum was one of the founders and one of the old war horses of our movement, the regular Baptist Fellowship, I actually had the privilege of a few times of hearing him preach. I liked it when I was a kid watching Robert T. Ketchum preach because he never preached without a handkerchief. Brother Smalley, he's preached here, hasn't he? Yes. Uh, never preached without a handkerchief. He always used it for some kind of illustration. It would be, uh, it would be a lamb around his neck, and, and, the, and the, the shepherd would be carrying home the lamb. And he had poor eyesight. He, uh, he, he, he couldn't read his Bible. He preached a whole message once with his Bible upside down, pretending he was reading it. His eyesight was so bad he had to commit things to memory. He was greatly used to the Lord. Can you imagine being in the Little Mountain Church that gave the gospel to the boy who was a rebel, that turned his heart to the Lord, and after that, thousands of people turned their hearts to the Lord because of that? That's, that's how exciting it is when you think about just being a light, pointing people to Jesus. There's nothing in the world that you can do that's greater than that. John the Baptist was great in the sight of the Lord because he pointed people to the Lord. He was also, you'll notice this, and that is, not only will you bring joy to many people if you point people to the Lord, not only will it be great in the sight of God if you point people to the Lord, but if you point people to the Lord, God will help you. As a matter of fact, you kind of think, well, I'm going to get up today, I'm going to go do this for God. But God is sovereign. God is overarching sovereignty over everything, is already at work in the lives of people. And this is where it gets real exciting. As a matter of fact, I just kind of like came to my mind, and I'm going to kind of dangerously go where, where, I, where, I, uh, where smarter men wouldn't go. But I thought about this today because I saw a guy walk in. 
We, we got a guy here in our church that when he was young, didn't know the Lord. He was an athlete, and he was a coach and so forth, and school teacher, and he didn't know the Lord. And He had another school teacher friend that was his friend who kept pestering him about the Lord. And eventually, this guy led him to the Lord. And they're both here today. Chuck isn't normally here. Chuck led Gary. Yes, Gary, I, I know all about you except your name. Yeah, Chuck led Gary to the Lord. Did I say that right? Is that what happened? And Gary, because Chuck is back there pestering him, Chuck, wave your hand so everybody... This, what, is, that like a, is that one of the greatest things you ever got to do in your entire life, is lead a, a, a fellow teacher to the Lord? And Gary, tell me this story, tears on his face, tells me, I can't get enough of the Bible. He is one of our solid ABF teachers today, and there's not a week that goes by that somebody doesn't tell me what a blessing Gary's been to them. Because Chuck bugged him about Jesus, so Gary got saved. And I'm wondering, are there any Chucks in the house today? And are there any Gary's where you work? Think about that. That's kind of exciting when you think about it that way. That I, I, I'm not where you are. I don't go where you go. I don't work where you work. You say, well, it's so dark where I work. Yeah, that's why God put you there. Because you're the light. And when you enlighten people to who Jesus is, who knows what's going to happen. Imagine Gary's life. Imagine Gary's family. Imagine Gary's marriage, his life, his family, his ministry. Because one guy bugged him about the Lord and witnessed to him. God was at work in, in Gary's heart. And God used Chuck. And God is at work now. I, we had a lady in our church. Her name was Ida. And she was a realtor. And she was an old school, get in your face, um, kind of a realtor. She hustled, man. She hustled. Out there, getting to know people. She not only worked really hard and she hustled, she expected me to do the same thing as the pastor. She said, well, you know, if I, if I would never make a living, if I didn't like follow up on people and pastor, uh, if I bring people to church, I want you to follow up on them. And she would check on me to make sure that I followed up on those people. She brought a lady to church named Lori, kind of pestered this lady named Lori. Lori comes to church one time, and then she's absent, and I go to visit her on a Saturday morning. I think, I better get over there, because if I don't go visit her, Ida's going to be bugging me about it. So I get in my car, and I go to Lori's house, and it's cold. She's got the heat turned down. She's got little kids. Her husband isn't there, and I've visited with her for a while, and I said to her, hey, Lori, you got to bring your girls, you got to bring your kids to Sunday school. And uh, would you do that? Can I count on seeing you tomorrow in church? And she says, all right, I will. And so I said, good, I'll be looking for you. And, of course, if you work like that, a lot of times people, they don't follow through because they're not used to it. And so they don't follow through. And you've got to keep working at it and keep loving on people. And sure enough, in the morning, it was very, very cold, and the furnace didn't work. And so she said, well, I can't, you know, I can't get up and I can't go to church because the furnace isn't working. So she called a furnace repairman. The furnace repairman happened to be a Baptist deacon. Here's what he said. He said, I tell you what. She said, I was going to go to church, but I got up and the furnace isn't working. He said, I'll tell you what, if I come over and I fix your furnace before church, do you promise to go to church? She said, well, yeah. So he goes and fixes her furnace. Little did he know, little did she know that when they both showed up at church, they were at the same church across the aisle from each other. A few weeks later, I had the privilege of baptizing that lady. I'll always remember it because it was the day that I baptized my oldest son, Kyle. 
Her husband was an unbeliever, kind of a hard-nosed type, you know. He didn't want to hear about it. And, you know, he was decent and pleasant enough, but he didn't come to church, except one day on Father's Day he came. Now, they'd had a few marriages, and they had children, a few children from different marriages. So they kind of, he, so we were giving away a prize to the dad who had the most kids. (laughs) He won the prize because he had the most kids. You know, it was just kind of awkward, but here he came, you know, and I gave him this tape from Jim Dobson's ministry because he was the dad with the, with the most kids, and he was nice about it, you know, and he never came back. And after a while, Lori and, and her family, they moved away. I heard they went to Florida. We started Sunday night church at that little church, and it wasn't really, really well attended. You know, we did our best, but one Sunday night after we had gotten going and we were in the, in the, in the music service, the, the back door of the church, the, the, the door of the church at the back aisle opened up, and Lori came walking in, just beaming, and there came her kids, and her husband Gary came walking in. There, I remembered his name, Gary. Now, what's the deal with that? Her husband Gary came walking in, and the second I saw him, here he was with a suit and tie and his big hurricane Bible under his arm. And I'm like, oh, he got saved. And he did. And he didn't even wait to the end of the service to tell me. You know, I'm like, Gary, Lori, good to see you. He goes, I want to tell you what happened to me. You know, we went to Florida. We got involved. Lori got involved in this church. I got saved. Now, just think about that. You got a realtor that's out pestering people about the Lord. You got a deacon that's using his brain on a Sunday morning, and he, he kind of hornswoggles the lady into going to church. And you got a lady who gets saved, and then later on her husband gets, can you please tell me what in the world is more exciting than that? When you, there isn't anything in the world that's more exciting than seeing people come to faith in Jesus. I'm talking here about the simple old... Here's the deal. We read a lot of like books about missiology and missions and evangelism, and we think about all these sophisticated things that people are doing. Sometimes people do things that are questionable. Sometimes do, people do things that are complex. Sometimes people do big studies and all of that. But we live in an, in an age that's becoming more and more dark, and fewer and fewer people are willing to come to church anymore because they don't have that even in their background. And so the question that comes to a mind of a person like me is then, what are we going to do to let these people know before it's too late that they're going to face eternity in hell and separation from God, or they can have the mercy of God and heaven? What are we going to do? And, and, and sometimes I get overwhelmed with that. And I think, what, what kind of programs must we start? And, 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 and what if we make a mistake? And, and then my mind goes back to the simple old thing that my grandfather always did. He got saved and told everybody about it. He got in his car and he went and he visited with people. He called himself a soul winner because he would go out and talk to people about the Lord and then he would try to get them to do what he did. He would, just, he would say, let's kneel down here on the ground and here's a prayer you can read. I mean, he tried to make it really plain for them because he wanted to lead people to Jesus Christ. Is there anybody that you know that you could be a light to and then you would bring joy into their life? Think about that. And you would be great in the sight of God. And you would be helped by God. Another thing that happens is if you bring someone to faith in Christ, or if even if you enlighten people to who Jesus is, then you're a peacemaker. That's the way it was with John. Look here. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink neither wine nor strong drink, but he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and it specifically says he didn't drink wine or strong drink. Which is kind of interesting to me. Now, maybe this is just kind of cheap. Maybe this is kind of a cheap slap in the, you know, in the face on the way by. But listen up to what I was thinking this morning. This is going through my mind. I hear people all the time saying that in order to reach people, you've got to kind of be like people. Which actually, in some cases, includes drinking with them. This is not what John the Baptist did. 
Are you with me? He, he didn't. I guarantee it. Because it specifically says he had made a vow that he wouldn't drink. And yet he was a powerful person to turn people to Jesus. You don't have to compromise, drink with people, carry on, act like them in order to win people to Jesus Christ. Be a light. Be a sincere testimony. Love people. And they will put up with your hang-ups that you have, like you don't drink and carry on and, you know, wake up with the bad headache in the morning, not remember where you were, where your car is, wreck your car, kill people. They, they won't remember any of that stuff, that you're not cool like them. <laughs> the Baptist wasn't that way. Well, I'm just bothering you, so I'll move on. So he's filled the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Verse 16 says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is the peacemaker peace, if you will. And verse 17, He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and disobedient to the wisdom of the just, make ready a people prepared for the Lord. When you're, a, when you're an evangelist, when you're a soul winner, when you... Point people to Jesus, you are a peacemaker in the highest sense of the word. There's no peace that comes into the heart of people like the peace that comes when they have peace with God. And then that peace has a tendency to make its way into the relationships in their life. This is what it says there in the blessing that Zacharias was giving his son in chapter 1 and uh, verse 79. He will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of of peace, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide their way in the light of peace. People are not at peace with each other. Nations are not at peace with each other. People don't have inner peace. And the reason is because they don't have peace with God. And when people have the Prince of Peace living and reigning in their heart, that's the only time when they ever really will have peace. You know, I thought this morning about a snowy day, and I'm a little surprised so many of you because if you showed up today, because if you listen to the news on Sunday, you ever notice this is Monday, they will, this is like time for the pastor to rant. Do you mind? Monday morning, here's what, the, here's what the weather report sounds like. Well, it's blustery out there. You know, bundle up on your way to work. There's 17 inches of snow, so it may slow you down a little bit. Here's Sunday morning. I mean, it's just me, but Sunday morning. It's going to snow an inch. Don't even think about going outdoors blizzards, you know, what in the world? I just, it's just me, and that's my pastor thing, you know, my cynical pastor, you know, the weather report just sounds different on Sunday than it does. I'm like, oh, come on, people, bundle up, go to church, like you did. This interesting story is a Christmas story. It's a conversion story. It's a winter story. It's a snow day story. It always comes to my mind on a day like this. It was December of 1849, young man at, at boarding school, and there was an outbreak of the fever at the New Market School where he went, and the school was temporarily closed. And so he went to Gloucester home for the Christmas season. This change of circumstances was used to the Lord along with a big snowstorm that came on a Sunday morning, and the boy couldn't get to where he would normally go to church. In his own words, Charles Spurgeon said, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm on a Sunday morning. While I was going to a different place of worship, I turned down a side street and I came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but, I did not, but it didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. 
The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now it, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. And he did not even pronounce the words rightly, but it did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Hey, he says in broad Essex, many of ye look into yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus says, look unto me. Some on, come on, you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. But you have no business with that just now. Just look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. And when he had managed to spin out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. He said directly to me, Young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However... It was a good blow, and it struck right home. He continued, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look to him. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. And I know now not what else he said. I did not make it, take much notice of it after that. I was so possessed by that one thought that I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it was to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Christ. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ alone and you will be saved. Yet it was, no doubt, all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. This happy day when I found the Savior and learned to cling to his dear feet was a day never to be forgotten by me. I listened to the word of God and that precious text led me to the way of the cross 
cross. And I can testify that joy of that day was utterly indescribable. I could have leaped. I could have danced. There was no expression, however fanatical, which could have been keeping uh, the joy of that hour. Many days of Christian experience have passed since then, but there's never been one which has had the full exhilaration, sparkling delight, which that first day had. I thought I could have sprung from the seat in which I sat and called out with the wildest of those Methodist brethren, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, a monument of grace, a sinner. Does this sound familiar to many of you? An experience like that? Have you forgotten how wonderful it is to be at peace with God and the people that are trying to, out there trying to do Christmas and they don't have joy and they don't have forgiveness and they don't have peace in their souls and they don't have peace with God? On this wintry day, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a boy in the house that looked to Jesus for the first time in his life or a woman or a man, a person who thought they knew the Lord but they really didn't. When you point people to Jesus, just this simple, when you make Jesus known, when you speak highly of him, when you give a gospel tract, when you try to explain the gospel, when you take somebody out for coffee to explain the gospel to them, when you take a little child at your knee and you explain the gospel to them and you point out Jesus to them, then you bring joy, you're great in the sight of God, you're helped by God, involved in what God is doing, and you're a peacemaker and you're rewarded. Now, my mother taught me this. She said to me, Kenny, witness wherever you go. When you go to school, tell the other kids about Jesus. When somebody gets saved, you will get a star in your crown. Being a child, very concrete, I thought of that crown and how I wanted lots of stars in, in my crown. And I had this friend, and he was a tough nut to crack. And I would witness to him, and you know, he had a dirty mouth, and he'd tell dirty stories. And the more dirty stories he told, the more I would witness to him. I'm about first grade, maybe second grade. So I'm telling this kid about Jesus, and my parents had taught me how to lead people to the Lord. They, they, they taught me how to take a little New Testament and put marks in the New Testament so that I could lead other people to the Lord. And so I would take this little kid, Stevie, through these little marks in my New Testament, and I would tell him he needed to be saved. But he was a hard nose, you know. No, he had a church he went to, and this church did things differently, and he didn't believe the way I did, and he would turn me down. And that always frustrated me because I thought, until I get this guy, you know, horse roped into the kingdom, I don't get a star in my crown, and i got to get him in. So I went home to my mom. I never forgot. I can remember the room I was standing in. And I said to my mom, Mom, I'm having trouble because this, this kid, he's, uh, he doesn't want to be saved. I said, do I still get a star in my crown if I witness to him, but he doesn't get saved? And my mom said, oh, yes. Yeah, you get a star in your crown if you witness to him and he doesn't get saved. Now, if you want to argue the theology of that, talk to my mother. But I think she was right. There's a reward for people who make an effort to point other people to Jesus Christ. My heart broke as one of our couples went out. And they just like, with tears on their face, I love the music so much. I invited so many people, but nobody came. I want to say to them, well, welcome to the business. That's the way it works. You invite people, and because they don't know the Lord and they're far from God, and some believers will come and they'll be edified, and that's good. There are people who don't know the Lord, and you so want them to see what you've seen, and yet they don't come right away. You don't quit. You know that if you're faithful, God is at work. 
in his own time and in his own beautiful way. He will bring people to himself and he will allow you to be involved in it. You just keep inviting and you just keep telling and you keep, keep loving people. You keep telling people because there is a reward. The scriptures say in Daniel 12 and verse 3, and by the way, don't you think that John the Baptist, when he lost his head and he went to heaven, there wasn't a rejoicing band of angels welcoming him home. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3 may have been a passage he had in his mind as they were taken off his head because of his faithfulness. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. There's a big debate today about church, about what they call missional and attractional. The attractional idea is you make church so attractive and so thoughtful that you actually, you're thinking through lost people and get them to come to church. And I got to tell you, I'm not against all of that. You know, you, you want people, if people are going to come to church and they will hear the gospel and they will see believers and they will get saved, the scriptures talk about that. It's like that happens sometimes. That's attractional. Most of our evangelism is attractional. Hey, come to the concert come to hear the preacher preach. Most of it is attractional. Students have studied this, and they said that 40% of people that are lost in North America would respond someday to an attractional method. They would come to church if they were invited, perhaps. But 60% of the people are so pagan, and they have no, like, church background, they would never come to church at all. No matter how sharp we are about our attractional methods, they are not going to come to hear our choir sing. And they're not going to come to hear our preacher preach. There's only one way that they're ever going to know about Jesus Christ, and that is one of us goes where they are, like a missionary, and tells them about Jesus where they live, in their house, where they work, in the school where you go to school. And I know what you're thinking. You're a student here, and you're thinking, I go to school, and it's rough. I mean, Pastor, you don't remember. It's been a long time since you've been in school. I have a hunch how difficult it might be to be in school. But don't you think there are kids in your school who need the Lord and who know there's something missing in their life? And sure, there are people that are going to mock you, and they're going to make fun of you, and they're going to disregard your God. But there are going to be that kid standing over there, quiet in the corner, and he's going to be thinking in his deepest part of his soul, there must be something to this. You could be used of God in your school as a missionary, and you would bring joy, and you would be great in the sight of God. And you would be helped by God. And you would be a peacemaker. And you would be rewarded by God just by the beautiful work of being a luminary for Jesus Christ. And so I say to you today, go tell it on the mountain. Sing it, speak it, tell it, love people, tell them about the Lord. Amen? Pastor.